put it together so clearly, to spell it out so clearly, this method, and to say so clearly this idea that I was saying earlier, which I think is the main idea of the Sikha, that your imperfections cannot disrupt Hashem's ability to do miracles for you. That's a, that's a radical concept. This is a live Zoom meeting, which is being recorded. So if you're with us live, we'll speak a little bit about how you can interact. If you're watching the recording of this, you'll be able to watch how others interacted. First and foremost, we want to uh, announce that tonight's learning is Beschus Henya Bas Brachad Veraleya for a speedy, complete recovery. The learning that we're doing tonight is not only um, in the merit of this recovery, but it is specifically connected to the entire idea of good things happening and our role in precipitating those good things and opening the way and the path for Hashem to be able to do quite anything for us. And that is the, the radical concept, and I will call it a radical concept, that the Rebbe explained regarding bitachen as a tool, not only of emotional well-being, but as a practical endeavor that is actually results-oriented. In other words, we're probably all familiar with the idea of trusting in God as a form of positive thinking. Uh, look on the bright side. Why worry yourself? Uh, whatever's going to happen is going to happen, so you may as well be relaxed and calm while you go through it, right? That's the general understanding of it. But the way that the Rebbe explained Betochen is that it actually has a practical effect on outcomes and is a rather effective way of making way for miracles. So we're going to talk about that tonight. Um, specifically, we are focusing our discussion on a sicha, an edited talk from the Rebbe, from Lakute Sicha's Chelaglamet Vav, volume 36, which is the first sicha of that volume. It's connected to Parshas Shmois. And um, many of the people who are joining us tonight have already learned this sicha on their own or in groups. So we're not going to be learning the, the sicha inside from the text, but our discussion is going to be based on some of the main ideas of the sicha. And I'll, I'll stress some of the main ideas of the sicha. We cannot obviously do justice to everything in uh, in one sitting, as we're doing tonight. Um, we are live right now, if you are indeed with us on Zoom, and we're going to invite you to write your questions in the chat. I will not be watching the chat that uh, vigilantly because I'm going to try to focus on, on what I'm saying, but we have a moderator tonight, uh, Hanala... Grossbaum now. Yeah. Uh, she is our moderator. She's also uh, Henya's niece. 
and she will take, uh, she'll sort of like take minutes, so to speak, to be the secretary. I want to make sure everyone's muted, by the way. Hanala, can you try to always, always, for some reason, Zoom lets people, from time to time, the mute function uh, lapses. So just if you ever hear any noise, I can do it, but you can also, Hanala is a co-host. So just make sure that, yeah, like right now I'm hearing people. I shouldn't really be hearing people. Um, yeah. Okay. So she will uh, compile the questions and we'll have a little bit of a Q&A where uh, she will uh, be the moderator and ask me the questions. Okay. So I think I'll start like this. Um, there's a major idea in this sicha that if I have to be honest, was always the idea that I played up when I taught this in the past. And I think my experience is fairly representative of my colleagues. In other words, this is a well-known sicha. Um, it's, a, it's a very exciting sicha, both intellectually and emotionally. Intellectually, it's just, it's got a lot of really strong questions and answers, and it's a, it's a pleasure to, to study just from an intellectual point of view. Also, emotionally, it's a very powerful sicha. It's incredibly uplifting, and it gives us work to do with a promise of a, a real outcome for that work. So it's it's a it's a well-known and 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 revered and and loved sicha, which many have taught. And whenever I've taught this sicha, I've I've emphasized the point here that um, the Rebbe references later on in the sicha uh, with a with a footnote to the Zohar, the idea of uh, I'll call it uh, in English reciprocity, that the way that our lives are conducted from on high. Is a, is a reciprocal action. It's a mirror image of our attitude down below. So uh, we have this power to project a positive attitude and then have that reflected back to us uh, from on high. And uh, I think this is an idea that a lot of people enjoy hearing. Uh, I think my experience has been that it resonates with many people who have heard such concepts perhaps in non-Jewish contexts, uh, Lahavdil, um, where they've heard about the power of positive thinking, not just as an emotional coping tool, but as something that actually has an effect on outcomes. In fact, I'm just thinking right now when I opened, <laughs> when I opened before, just now when I opened this, this uh, session of learning, I think that's the first thing that I said. I caught myself doing it again. I just caught myself doing it again. Um, yeah, when I summarized what the sicha is about. So uh, this idea that we have we have the power to elicit a, 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 a sort of conduct from on high that is commensurate to the, the type of attitude that we're able to muster down here. Um, and what I want to say is... I think that's a very important concept, but there are some other concepts that I think we really need to focus on and perhaps 
even it's it's the the need is more acute and more urgent to focus on those ideas um and i'll tell you why because at the end of the day all of these ideas are all well and good but if we come away from it and say what a beautiful concept but you know a guy like me how could it apply to me and we dismiss it and we we dismiss it by by sort of aggrandizing it by saying oh, it's such a beautiful idea such a holy idea and unfortunately you know who am i to think that such an idea could apply to me. So we sort of excuse ourselves from it applying to us. And to my thinking, at least the way that I'm learning the Sikha right now, and I got to tell you something, Lakut Sikhas is like a new, it's a new safer every time you visit it. <laughs> There's no question. Every time I go back to a Sikha, there are new Giluyim, new revelations. So the way that I'm learning it now, uh, and maybe this is just personally me, but the main point is not so much this interesting concept of this uh, law of reciprocity in the in the in the world it's an important point and it's obviously uh, essential to the argument that the sikha is making but to me the main point is that i must not think in fact the whole thesis here of the sikha to me to my thinking is i must not think that this concept does not apply to me or that i'm not good enough for it or that i'm unworthy of it to the contrary the whole point is that my lack of perceived worth or 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 my lack of of of, of deserving that such a thing should should be applicable uh, applicable to me is the first thing that i need to completely banish from my mind and that this is speaking to me so the Sikha begins with a question about Meshur Abenu. Um, he kills the Egyptian taskmaster who's abusing a Jewish man. And then he observes two Jews fighting. And he seeks to intervene in that fight. And... Um, they say to him, hey, what are you going to do? Kill us like you killed the Egyptian? And Moshe Rabbeinu becomes afraid and he says, oh no, the matter is known. So what is this matter that is known? There are different explanations, but uh, in the context of the Sikha, the one that we focus on is it is now known that Moshe Rabbeinu killed the Egyptian. And the very next thing we're told is that indeed the matter was known. Pare, the king of Egypt, found out about what Moshe did, and Moshe had to flee for his life from Egypt. So I'm not going to get into all the questions about the that the Rebbe asks regarding Rashi's commentary there and about the flow of the verses and how this narrative uh, is a logical progression. But suffice it to say, what happens is we we start to discuss the mechanics of betochen or the lack thereof that are at work in this story. And we do this by first analyzing a medrash. 
It's interesting. I was thinking to myself, the Medrash is actually connected to this week's Parsha, to Parsha's Vayishlach. Um, although the Sicha, the edited Sicha, is in Parsha's Shmois of Chelek uh, Lamed Vav of Lakutis Sichas. The the, the and 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 the original Fabrengans, by the way, that the Sicha is based on, were from Parsha Shmois and Bishalach. I think Shmois Chavav uh, and Bishalach Chav Gimel, I believe. Um, but there's also a strong Vayishlach connection in this Sicha, which is uh, in the second ois of of the Sicha. Rebbe brings a madrash that describes. Two great tzaddikim who were afraid, Yankov Avinu and Meishrabeinu. Both of them were afraid. And the question that we're we're asking is: Was that a good thing, or was it not a good thing that they were afraid? And there are two ways of looking at it. the different commentaries on the Medrash explain it two opposite ways. Once you know it like everything, or almost nearly everything in Torah, we have divergent opinions. So to say it was not a good thing, that that's kind of easy to explain. It's, it was a lack of faith. Well, why are they afraid that anything's going to happen to them? Hashem is, is, is taking care of them. But you want to explain how it's a good thing. How is it a good thing? Okay, how is it a good thing that they lacked faith? Ah, Because it wasn't a lack of faith. It was humility. See, it was humility. They weren't afraid that Hashem wouldn't make good on, on his promise. What they were afraid of is, and in, in the, in the, the rabbinic idiom for this is Shema Gorim Hachet. Perhaps sin had an effect. That maybe sin had an effect. In other words, nobody's perfect. And maybe, this is what Yankee Vivino and Meshurabin are thinking, I did something and I've interfered now with the blessings that I was supposed to receive. Ah, so that's why it makes sense to say that it was a good thing that both Moshe and Yankee Avino were afraid. And by the way, when it speaks about Moshe Rabbeinu being afraid, it's not talking about this story. It's actually talking about when he was afraid to fight the giant Ike. But at any rate, so now we have this understanding that being afraid that something negative could happen to us actually could be a rather pious attitude. It's, it's a humble attitude. It's an attitude of, you know, nobody's perfect. I'm certainly not free of, of, of any fault. So yeah, maybe something could, something untoward could happen to me. So we're, we're starting to understand where a person could get that attitude from. Now, remember I was saying to you that what, what's really jumping out to me right now about this sicha is the need to stop thinking that the concept of betochen is such a beautiful concept, but unfortunately it, don't, it doesn't apply to a guy like me because I'm just too imperfect. This is exactly what we're getting into. You see, <laughs> if Yanka Vivino and Meish Rabbeinu had what to worry about, that maybe they messed up Hashem's ability to deliver on his promises for, for them. Well, how much more so a guy like me, people like us, we have what to worry about. And, and this 
is one of the main points of the Sikha. In other words, how do we explain to someone who, as a point of religious faith, is concerned with their own faults and flaws and imperfections and is only trying to be honest and humble about their about their status and about their situation. How do you tell a religious person that? Ah, don't worry about it. In other words, what I'm trying to say to you is this. I've told you, I told you, I've taught this sikha many times. And I've taught it to all types of crowds. When I have taught this in the past to people who are not coming from a, an observant background, the main concept that they're interested in and for them is the most important co concept cognitively for them to grasp in order to accept the premise of the Sikha is the idea that I mentioned earlier, that that law of reciprocity that the Zohar speaks about, that we do have power and that our attitude does elicit a response from on high. And once you explain that concept and explain how it works, the mechanics of it, um, then People who are coming from not such a religious background, they hear that and they're like, wow, that's great. Let me go out and do it. The problem is, <laughs> ironically, the more religious people have a greater obstacle in believing in the practical teaching of the Sikha. They, they believe it in theory, but then they, they, they say, well, hold on a second. How could this work for me? Do you know who I am? What, what are you going to tell me all of a sudden that that Hashem doesn't operate measure for measure? What happened to Midah Keneg and Midah? Okay, so I'm not perfect. How could I expect Hashem to treat me perfectly? I want perfect service. That's what I deserve. I don't deserve that. I'm just being honest, just being humble. So to me, that's exactly the attitude that the Sikha is, is focusing on and trying to deal with. It's trying to bring out the idea, or I should say it successfully brings out the idea, and we are trying to believe and absorb and integrate the idea that the rules of Mida Kenegid Mida, the rules of Scharva Einish, all of these principles, these hallowed principles, these axioms, if you will, of Jewish belief are not suspended they are not held in abeyance in order to give us this life hack of being able to trigger divine favor by simply having a positive attitude. In other words, we're concerned if, if this thing really works, and in order for it to work for a guy like me, who certainly doesn't deserve it, I'm not a tzaddik, right? In order for it to work for a guy like me, there's a lot of stuff that I held axiomatic that's going to have to be suspended in order for it to work. And what the Rebbe is explaining here is, no, actually, we're going to stay true and we're going to preserve the concepts of reward and punishment, measure for measure. All of that stuff is going to be held intact. And at the very same time, we have this incredible, powerful tool that works for imperfect people. It works for imperfect people. Okay. How in the world is that possible? So... Basically, I'll, I'll jump ahead toward almost the very end of the Sikha. But in, uh, in Ois Hay, 
the Rebbe explains that what he's not saying. It's a, it's a paragraph there in Ice Hay, when the Rebbe, chapter 5, where the Rebbe says, and what I'm not saying is that a person can just go and be happy-go-lucky and say, hey, everything is fine, and therefore it's all fine. What I'm saying is that bitochen itself is an avayda. It's a form of spiritual service, and it's hard work. You think it's easy? You think it's easy to genuinely not just talk the talk, but to walk the walk of bitochen. You think it's easy to actually calm oneself? And as the Rebbe mentions earlier in the Sicha, according to Rebbe Nebuchadnezzar and Shara Bitochen, that bitochen is an emotional state. Mahus ha-bitochen, he calls it. What is real bitochen? It's manuches hanafish. It's that you're actually calm. So it's not just a proclamation of faith. Animamin, I believe. No, it's an actual emotional state. So the Rebbe makes a point there in Ois Hay. In order to achieve that emotional state, that's hard work. And therefore, that hard work can be the, the, um, the, the, the merit with which one actually does deserve divine favor, even if that may even be his only merit. So first of all, even if you'd be unworthy without the betochen, if it weren't for the betochen, you wouldn't be worthy. Take. Yeah, you wouldn't be worthy. And even more though, even more than that, that even if the betochen itself is, is your only merit. And, and the Rebbe brings there, there's a footnote, which is so packed with information, and it's just worthy of, of being looked into a little bit more deeply. That's footnote 40, where... Um, the Rebbe brings Sefer Ikrim that says, what does it mean in Tehillim when David Melech says, chesid that someone who believes in God, kindness will encircle him. It means that even if he's otherwise unworthy, but his merit of believing that God's going to treat him well is actually going to cause God to treat him well, even if without that belief, he wouldn't have deserved it. And then furthermore, the Rebbe adds there a Kasser Shemtov, where uh, the Baal Shemtov says that there's a situation where there's a person who actually is deserving of divine punishment, and they cannot punish him from on high because he believes that he's going to be okay. And his belief, his betochen, that he, he's going to have a good life, that protects him from anything uh, happening to him, even though not only he's not worthy of being treated well, he's actually worthy of a punishment. This person is worthy of a punishment, and he won't get punished as long as he has his betochen. That's in footnote 40 there. So this is a very powerful concept. The idea that we are not skirting the whole concept of, of, of there, there being law and order in this world. We're not throwing away the system and saying, oh, we'll just, be happy, and then everything will work out. And it doesn't matter that, uh, normally speaking, there's there's reward and punishment. There are people who are deserving, people who are undeserving. We're not saying that at all. What we're saying is maybe there's another way or maybe even a better way to be deserving than the conventional path. Now, this itself requires a very important clarification. 
because a person could hear that and say, oh, so basically, and I guess the person who would say this would be someone who's very transactional in his relationship with Hashem. In other words, he's only in a relationship with Hashem in order to get goodies from God. <laughs> and if that if that's the case, a person who hears this concept could misappropriate the, misappropriate the idea and say, oh, I just found out a hack. You don't even have to do mitzvahs. You don't even have to observe the Torah because as long as you have bitachon, you're protected. You're going to be good. So we have to address that because, but by the way, if you're learning this properly, you will have that question. Maybe you won't have the question in earnest because you're not trying to use God and just trying to get him to give you what you want. But at least intellectually, the question should, should arise. Hold on. Is this saying that now even a person who has no other merit, doesn't do anything else, observes nothing else, but he has betachin that Hashem's going to treat him well. So now Hashem can't do anything to him. He can't get punished. Is that what it's really saying? Because if so, that seems to be flying in the face of, of the whole concept of which the Rebbe is going to great pains not to go against. And the Rebbe says this explicitly in the Sicha, that we are not going against the, the axiom of of So then how do we explain this? And again, a lot of these, these technical questions are, are addressed in the footnotes, which is why it's important when you learn the Sicha to, to learn with the footnotes. Um, there's a footnote 35. And over there, he brings, the Rebbe brings from Shara Betochen. And actually, when I taught Shara Betochen a couple of years ago, we had a nightly 30 minutes a night shir in Shara Betochen. I think it was like 45 classes. And we went through the whole Shara Betochen. So I remember at the time that I referenced this Sicha and, uh, and made a big point of explaining this concept. But uh, if you look on page four of the Sicha, if you have the actual Sicha, the way it's laid out in Lukut Sichas, there's a footnote 35, Lamed Hay. And um, over there, it brings from the third chapter of Shar Betochen, and there's there are a few hakdamas he says there's a few prerequisites for betachin, and there's the fourth hakdama hakdama haravias. It says that a person who has betachin has to do God's will. A person who has betachin has to do God's will. That that's one of the prerequisites. So he calls them hakdamas. So what what does this mean that a person who has betachin has to do God's will? Let me explain what it doesn't mean. And this is what I explained when I give the Shabbat Tochen share, but it's really important right now to our discussion tonight. Here's what it doesn't mean. A person might think, like I was saying before, he might think very, uh, might think very economically about his relationship with Hashem as sort of a quid pro quo, tit for tat relationship, or what I call transactional a moment ago. And therefore, if I want to get out of Hashem what I want, I have to give him what he wants. Okay, what do I want? Uh, I want the blessings in my life. And what does he want? Uh, apparently, he wants Tayyag mitzvahs because that's what he asked for in the Torah. So that's what I'm, we'll trade. Let's do an exchange. Let's barter. Now, that should immediately strike you as being 
uh, certainly at least according to Chassidus, that it's not what a healthy relationship with Hashem should sound like. Um, but even even according to to the the principles that Chazal speak about mitzvahs lishma to do mitzvahs for their own sake, it's not uh, okay. Maybe as an intermediate or beginner's mode until you get to the real kavana. But what are we really saying here? That a person, when Rabbi Nachaya says in Shara Betochen, that a person who has betochen has to do mitzvahs. It doesn't mean that if he doesn't do the mitzvahs, then he's not going to get the stuff that he wants to get from Hashem. That's not what it means. And in this footnote, footnote 35, the Rebbe explains that. It needs a lot of amplification because it's short. But the Rebbe explains like this. It doesn't mean that he's in a transactional relationship with Hashem. Because if it did mean that, not only is it like we're saying, kind of uh, questionable, the whole attitude. But but more than that, it would contradict something that Rabbeinu B'chai himself has told us about Betochen. Rabbeinu B'chai tells us, specifically the Rebbe references the beginning of chapter 2 of Shara Betochen, that um, one of the reasons that we do have Betochen and Hashem, or he calls them the Sibais, the first Siba, the first reason for Betochen, is the Rachimim Chemla Ahava the compassion and the mercy and the love that Hashem has for us. So you're telling me that Hashem has mercy, compassion, love, meaning to say he's going to be nice. He's not going to be mean. He's not going to look to catch us out. He's going to, to the contrary, he's going to look to be lenient and liberal, and he's going to give us a free pass, and he's always trying to do kindness for us, okay? So if that's the truth, then what are you telling me? Ha, 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 ha. But if you don't give him what he wants, he's going to be a tyrant. He's going to be a martinet. He's going to be draconian. He's going to just catch you out and that's it. I'm sorry. Nothing we can do for you. Our hands are tied. Rules are rules. It, conceptually, it doesn't make sense. So the Rebbe explains, but what does it mean, this concept that somebody who has betochen has to be observant of God's rules, what, he mean, what it means is not that in order to get kindness from God, you have to trade with him his, the stuff that he wants from you. It's not quid pro quo. It's not a, not a user relationship. It's much more simple than that. The statement means like this. I'll say it in plain English. You really trust in Hashem? Yeah, 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 I do. No, no, no. I trust, remember we said it's an emotional state. It's not a proclamation. It's not a slogan. It's not a bumper sticker. Trust means, do you feel calm? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I feel calm. All right. Great. So that means you trust that everything Hashem tells you to do in his Torah is good for you. And that you're not going to have any problem thinking that he's inconveniencing you or messing up your life by making you do these things. Oh, you're right. In other words, being observant is a natural outgrowth of trusting in Hashem. Or it's just another manifestation of trusting in Hashem. It's aligned with the whole concept of trusting in Hashem. If you trust in Hashem enough to be at ease and to feel taken care of in your life, then obviously that goes hand in hand with feeling like doing the mitzvahs is is a good thing to do. And it'll even be good for you. 
And not just because he's going to pay you for it, but because if this is what he's asking me to do, it must be a good, it must be good for me. So you understand it's a very important concept there. It's not quid pro quo. We're not bartering mitzvahs with Hashem in order to get a 10-speed 10 10 bicycle uh, that we put on our, uh, our wish list. That's not the point. The point is that if we want to have truly integrated trust, where we feel it in our bones, one of the indications of that, the litmus test or a litmus test of that, is that we're comfortable being servants of Hashem and doing what he wants. But we shouldn't think that it's quid pro quo. That's the, in fact, one of the major points of this sicha, that a person should not say, especially a religious person should not say, if I look honestly at my own religious performance, I know I'm not worthy of Hashem's kindness. You have to stop saying that. It's not true. Because even if technically you're not worthy of Hashem's kindness, the fact that you believe that even if I'm not worthy, Hashem can still be kind, that itself is a merit that makes you worthy of Hashem's kindness. The Rebbe doesn't mention this in the Sikha, but I'll tell you a story, which to me, I think, helps understand this concept. Reb Zusha was one of the Talmidei Amagid. And there was a rich guy who used to come to his house and bring him money. And one time, the guy came to Rebzusha's house, and his wife answered the door. So he said, I came to bring money to the Rebbe. And she said, he's by the Rebbe. And he said, what? I'm looking for the Rebbe. She said, no, no, by his Rebbe, meaning the Magid. And... Uh, which, by the way, may have meant that he was at the oil of the Magid. Abzusha lived in Anipole, which was the town, is still the town of the, the resting place of the Magid. I never worked out exactly chronologically when this story took place, but it seems to me, after I thought about it for a while, his wife probably meant that Abzusha was local, but he was at the oil. And that's what she meant when she said he's by the Rebbe. At any rate, the point of the story is that this rich guy hears that the Rebbe has a Rebbe. So he didn't drop off the money that he came to deliver. Instead, he uh, decided he's going to give the money to the Rebbe's Rebbe. <coughs> so if, if it means he went to Mezrich, that's also part of why I think probably was referring to the oil, because I don't think the guy went to Mezrich. I think the guy probably donated toward the upkeep of, of the, the Magid's resting place. But at any rate, he didn't give the money to Zusha. He always used to give the money to Zusha. He gave the money to the Magid, to the Rebbe's Rebbe. So a uh, short time afterwards, this rich guy became poor. So he came to Reb Zusha, and he said, what happened? I'm sure I'm being punished, and I think it's uh, it's your hakpada that you're you have a grudge against me. And Zosia said, "Chas v'shalom, I'm 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 not makpid at all. I have no grudge against you at all." He said, "Then then why did this happen to me?" So Reb Zosia said to him, I'll, "I'll tell you why it happened. It's very simple." He said, 
you think I'm a Rebbe, or you used to think I'm a Rebbe. I'm not a Rebbe. I'm just a regular guy. But uh, you gave to me as if I were a Rebbe. So in heaven, they treated you as if you're a rich man. <laughs> you're not really a rich man. You think you deserve that well? No, you didn't. But you had a Rebbe who's not a Rebbe, so you are a rich, you are a rich man who's not really a rich man. But the second you, you wised up and you said, oh, the Rebbe has a Rebbe. Let me go to a real Rebbe. They said, let's give the money to a real rich man, not to this guy who's not really a rich man. What I'm saying is that fake it till you make it. I'm sure we're familiar with that phrase. Um, over here is a very serious concept regarding my identity and the way that I imagine Hashem sees me. When Hashem looks at me, is he noticing my flaws and all of the reasons why, according to his system of justice, I'm unworthy of kindness or even, God forbid, worthy of the opposite of kindness? Or does Hashem look at me lovingly? Does Hashem overlook all the reasons not to be kind and focus on his excuses to be kind? So this, is, this to me, is a very important concept in the Sikha, that we have to believe that even though, technically speaking, on paper, an argument could be made that we're not worthy, and indeed, perhaps, according to those who explain the Medrash this way, even Yankov Avino and Meishu Rabbeinu had such concerns. What we have to know is that that is not pious, we think it's pious. That's why, that's why we're doing. It. We think that, look, I'm a religious Jew, and I and I believe there are certain rules. And if you don't live up to them, I'm not, you're you're unworthy. What can you do? These are the rules. That's not the pious attitude. That's not the religious outlook. The religious outlook is that if I can muster a true sense of security, of peace, of well-being, that Hashem is able to treat me lovingly. And that means that Emma makes a point of this in the Sikha in ways that are readily and obviously kind, not things that I have to understand after 120 or after Mashiach comes, how they were really hidden kindness. No, that Hashem can show me kindness in the most revealed way. And that my imperfections are absolutely no obstacle. My imperfections are no impediment to Hashem doing whatever He chooses to do in his love and his kindness. Well, that itself is worthy of abundant loving kindness. So you see what we've done here is that we've figured out a way around the religious guilt and self-hatred without, God forbid, undermining the entire concept of reward and punishment and, and measure for measure. To the contrary, the entire argument here is predicated on the belief of measure for measure. That this itself, the belief that Hashem can be kind to me, even when I'm unworthy of Him being kind to me, is what makes me worthy of Him being kind to me.
I like that. It sounds like <laughs> it sounds paradoxical. It is paradoxical that my belief, I'll say it again, my belief that Hashem can be kind to me even when I'm unworthy of Hashem being kind to me is precisely what makes me worthy of Hashem being kind to me. Now, I'll add my own personal commentary. I don't know if I should, but at least I'm going to tell you that this is my thought, and therefore you could ignore it if you choose. So I'm giving you warning. Lubavitchers learn this sicha, and they come away from it. And yeah, I guess I'm being, I guess I'm sort of um, being stereotyping when I say Lubavitchers, but this is just my personal experience of who I've seen having this, this obstacle with this sicha. They learn this sicha and they say, okay, so if I have betochen, then it's all going to be good for me. Now I have a new obsession, a new object for my religious guilt. It's that I don't have enough betochen. <laughs> you understand? <laughs> like a regular religious person learning this sicha has regular religious guilt. And he's afraid Hashem's not going to be able to be kind to me because I messed it up through uh, whatever lack that I have in my, in my observance. The Lubavitch who learns this uh, has a special uh, object of, of, of religious guilt. And that is, if I had betochen, Hashem could be kind to me. Oh, but that's how Hashem's not going to be able to be kind to me. That's how I messed it up. I get it. Yeah. Even if I'm not 100% perfect in my observance. But if I had betochen, Hashem could overlook that. But I don't have betochen. And that's probably... If you really want to think about it, that that that's probably a, even a bigger chassadin. That's even a bigger character defect. Like to say you're not 100 percent completely going according to Shulchan Aruch. Okay, I mean, you could catch anybody doing one thing. You could find one. You know, you could find a, a psul. You could find some type of defect in in anyone's Torah observance. But to say I don't trust God, I mean, that's a very foundational thing. Now I have even more religious guilt. Okay, you know what? I'm I, now I'm worthy of all types of bad stuff, right? And and it's justified because I didn't even live up to the sikh of trachud vitzayin goods from the sikhs. Okay, so here's what I want to tell you. It was and this was important for me personally, and that's why I want to share it with you. I found that I had to come to the following conclusion in my process of internalizing this sikh. And that is the following. And when I'm saying this, I'm not saying this as an explanation. I'm actually saying something that that I've lived with. Hashem can do kindness even if it requires miracles, Hashem is unlimited, Hashem is all-powerful, Hashem is all-loving. And I'm not able to mess that up. I can't mess that up. And in fact, even if I don't perfectly live up to the betochen, and again, this is on my responsibility, I'm making this statement, and you can 
disagree with it. You can disregard it. You can negate it. But here's what was important for me to come to, at least at this stage in the process. That even if I have a lack of betachen, that Hashem can take care of me, my belief is that Hashem can still take care of me, even if I don't believe that Hashem can take care of me. I trust that even if I don't trust that Hashem can take care of me, Hashem can still take care of me. That's how I had to do it for myself. You understand what I'm saying? I trust, and I actually am able to, to convince myself of this. And how do I know? I always do the gut check. Not do I understand Pshat in my mind, because for that, you know, for teaching a class, you know, you just have to understand how to say it in pretty words. But I'm, I'm talking about the gut check. Does it actually bring me peace? And as we've explained, the Rebbe cites the definition of betochen, mahusa betochen is menuchas hanafish. It is an emotional state. It's not a concept. It's not a slogan. It's not uh, principles of faith. It's an emotional state. How do I bring myself to this emotional state? I can tell myself. <laughs> and it doesn't say this explicitly in the Sikha. But this is what I tell myself, that I trust that Hashem can be kind to me, even in a case where I'm not trusting that Hashem can be kind to me. <laughs> so even my lack of betochen, I trust my betochen is, that even my lack of betochen is not an impediment. So in the end, that is a type of betochen. <laughs> it's a, I guess it's a special form of betochen that those of us who have religious guilt stemming from the sicha itself are, uh, may find useful. But the point is the bottom line. The point is the bottom line, that I'm able to feel emotionally secure, that there's nothing that I can do that would mess up Hashem's ability to help me out, even if it requires miracles. And for Hashem, what's a miracle? So there's nothing I can do that can mess that up. Nothing I can do as far as being not 100% perfect in my Torah observance. And in fact, and I'm adding this, even not being 100% perfect in my betochen. You know what? Even my imperfect betochen is enough betochen. And that's my betochen. My trust, which brings me comfort, is that even in my imperfection, whether it's in Torah observance or it's in betochen itself, is fine. Hashem's got me. Hashem loves me. Hashem's going to take care of me. And there's no impediment. And I can't mess it up. There's nothing I can do that can mess it up. And that's the real humility. This is very important. That's the real humility. Because the whole original argument of why maybe I'm not worthy of Hashem's kindness came from a desire to be humble. Well, who's perfect? I mean, even Yankov, you know, even Meshach Rabbeinu. You know, who's perfect? Who's really deserving? So we're trying to be so humble? Okay. You want to be humble? Here's how to be humble. You can't mess it up. And again, I'll repeat it because it needs to be repeated, I believe, what it says in, in footnote 35. This is not a free pass, God forbid, to be antinomian and, and, and to disregard halacha, God forbid, and God forbid. It's not saying, oh, therefore, you can do whatever you want. No, because as Rabbein Abchayas says very clearly in chapter 3 of Shara Betochen, being observant is, is part of walking the walk of Betochen. If you really believe that Hashem is taking care of you, then you're going to live an observant lifestyle, obviously, because you believe that Hashem wants the best for you, and therefore His will is the best way to live. So it's it's not, God forbid, suggesting, oh, now you don't have to observe anything. All you have to do is have, have betochen. God forbid. That's very clearly not saying that. But what it is saying 
is that we have to stop with the false humility of thinking that our imperfections are making it impossible for Hashem to treat us with the love that a father wants to treat his children with. And if you want to really be humble, realize your father's going to be kind to you and you can't mess it up. There's, there's, there's a lot more to say, a lot more I planned on saying, but it's the, it's, it's, we're getting close to the top of the hour and I wanted to allow for some Q and a, so, um, can we, if, uh, should we start with some questions? Sure. Are you able to moderate? Yeah. So just to clarify, um, people want to know what's the difference between Amuna and Bitachin. Okay. So the difference between Amuna and Bitachin, and this is mentioned in the Sikha, early in the Sikha, I think in Sif Base. Um, and that is, no, actually in Sif Gimel, that one understanding of trust in Hashem is that, well, even if bad things happen to me, it's for my, ultimately it's for my good because it's cleansing or it's whatever. Um, and the Rebbe makes a point that that's not what we mean. Um, but talking is, I believe that it'll be good for me in a revealed way. So then what is this idea that even things that are bad are really hidden good? I'm going to press mute because I hear noise in the background. So that would be Amunah. That's what Amunah would be. Amunah, in other words, is the belief that even things that I cannot see as being good ultimately have to fit somehow into Hashem's master plan, and those things are good. Bitochen is the belief, no, no, Hashem can take care of me in a way that it will be obviously good, in a way that I can immediately see it and identify it as good without any philosophizing. Now, you didn't ask me this, but I would ask me this. Well, how do you know when to use which? Or do you use both of them all the time? And I think the most useful guide would be, I would separate between the past and the future. When it comes to what has already happened, for that, we need a mona because it is what it is. It's already occurred. That's why, for instance, the Gemara says that if somebody's walking into a city, he's been, he's been traveling out of town and he comes home, and as he gets into the city, he hears that there's a, a house that's burnt down. He shouldn't pray, oh, please let it not be my house. And the reason he shouldn't pray, please let it not be my house, is not because just because that would be mean, because it means he's praying that it's somebody else's house, but because it's called a tfilas shav. It's called a prayer in vain. You know why? Because he was told somebody's house already burnt down. So either it was his house or it wasn't. It's done already. So when it comes to the past, if something happened that was not revealed good, for that we need a munna, and we need to say Hashem has his reasons, even if we don't know them, or even if they are unknowable, there's a difference between the two. We don't know them means at some point we could know them. Unknowable means fundamentally uh, incomprehensible. 
But when it comes to the future, and this is a very big point of this sicha, we can and we should believe that things will be good in a way of toiv hanira v'hanigla, apparent and obvious revealed good, even if it requires miracles, because for Hashem, that's absolutely no obstacle whatsoever. Um, we have another question, which is, you know, we say that if you have, like, having Bitachin actually has the ability to change, you know, the outcome, um, but what if, like, what if the outcome's not good? Someone wants to know, does that mean does that show a lack on their bitachin? Does that mean their bitachin wasn't really, um, it wasn't true? Because if it really was true, then that should have changed what the outcome is going to be. Yeah. I hear the question. It's a very difficult question, um, not just intellectually, but emotionally. Because, of course, it's not the first time that many of us on this uh, meeting have heard the ideas in this sicha. Um, the, 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 the idea of which is, by the way, a story of the Tzamech Tzedek, which the Rebbe tells in this, uh, in this sicha, a story about a chassid who had a, a child who was not well, and he went to the Tzamech Tzedek, and the Tzamech Tzedek told him, Tzamech Tzedek, which in Yiddish means think good and it'll be good. So many, many of us have either learned this sicha before or, or have heard that concept before. We've heard that those words, think good and it'll be good. And um, sometimes we've practiced that or attempted to practice it and it didn't work out. So how do we, and which is very painful, obviously. It's not... I would say it's doubly painful. It's not only painful because whatever happened was a painful thing, but it's also painful because it can, God forbid, shake our, our belief. Here we went and we tried to do in earnest something that we were told to do, and uh, we see it not working and it could cause us to question. Or at the very least, it causes uh, fatigue, depletes us causes burnout, spiritual burnout. So here, here's what I'll tell you. And uh, there may be others who will explain it differently. And that's, I invite that. I invite other explanations to that. Um, and, I, and I take full responsibility for this explanation. We know that um, there are many situations in life where we don't even think about betachen. Now, it's interesting. Why Why don't we think about betachen in those situations? Seemingly, we rely on Hashem for everything. But in our subjective perspective, uh, a lot of times we feel like, oh, I got this. Don't worry. I got this. Don't worry, Hashem. I've got this which is actually not correct. We shouldn't, uh, <laughs> we shouldn't have that attitude. But the reality is very often we do. So in those cases where we don't feel betochen is necessary, in other words, we don't have to rely on that ace in the hole, as it were, 
what do we do? We just do plain old-fashioned ishtadlis, just natural stuff. Um, in fact, for many of us, that feels like the responsible adult approach to things because it's just it's normal, it's natural, doesn't doesn't rely on anything supernatural or, or miraculous, spiritual. But the reality is that there's plenty of things that seem like they're a slam dunk and we go through the process that's the normal process and it's not 100% guaranteed. It doesn't always happen the way that we thought it would happen. I mean, it was it seemed like a logical thing. A, B, C, you just do this process and and it works. But But it doesn't, at least not always. But we don't say, oh my goodness, uh, reality is broken we just say okay you know you win some you lose some doesn't shake us to the core is what i'm saying if you're told if you do this this and this then generally speaking the natural thing is it's guaranteed to have certain results and then you do this this and this but it's not a hundred percent nobody starts questioning nobody's deeply shaken nobody starts uh and, and nobody's pained by it they don't take it as a as, as a as as personally uh, as a rejection or, or or they don't take it as a sign of of being unworthy they just say okay so not everything always works what i'm saying about betochen is that it's as good if not better I would argue it's probably more powerful than conventional histadlis by itself. Although, parentheses for, for a second, the Rebbe makes it clear that even when we do the Trachut Vetzainkut protocol, we accompany that with histadlis at the same time. In other words, we do the natural things at the same time. Um, but in the event, like I was saying before, that we 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 try to do something that we're we're not invoking trachut because we're just doing natural stuff in order for it to happen and it doesn't work out. Okay, so we accept the fact nothing is a hundred percent guaranteed. Hashem has other reasons, and I guess what I'm saying is that if in the past you've tried trachut vitzaynkut and it didn't work. Okay, one explanation you could give yourself, and I think this is the go-to explanation people probably already have given themselves is, oh, I must not have done it well. Because if I did it perfectly, it would have worked. And I'm saying, I'm not comfortable with that. Maybe maybe that's correct, but I'm not comfortable with it. And the reason I'm not comfortable, first of all, personally, I'm just gonna admit I don't like it. But also trying in earnest to be true to the Sikha, I, I, to me, I believe the whole point of the sikha is with our imperfections and all. As long as we can get ourselves into that state of emotional security that Shem's taking care of us, he can overlook all of our all of our defects. So I don't want to make this about our defects. To me, the whole point of the sikha is get over your defects. Stop making your defects this, this idol that's blocking you off from God, okay? So I would say that just like when you try natural things and they don't work and you say oh it didn't work hashem had other plans there were other factors obviously factors that only infinite wisdom can perceive so too sometimes we try and it's 
as good, if not better. Again, I would say it's better, more effective, more powerful, more potent, more uh, effective than conventional Hishtadlis by itself. But in the event that we didn't get the, the result we wanted, okay, so then we go back to the Amuna that we spoke of. And the Amuna is, apparently Hashem has his reasons. Now, here's the difficult part. You got to try to forget about that while you're doing your trachut v'zayngut. Because if you start preparing in your mind the amuna that you're going to have in the event that has v'shalom things go wrong, you're already psyching yourself out. You're already, you see, you're already taking away your, your emotional security. So we have to focus and we have to say, you know what? That's not, this is not appropriate thinking for right now. If we have to talk about Amuna, Hasvashol, <laughs> sounds funny for Ramayid to say the words, we have to talk about Amuna, Hasvashol, but if you, if you understand what Amuna means, <laughs> when do you have to come onto uh, Amuna is when, when you have to, you have something you can't explain. So if we have, God forbid, something we can't explain, how is that possibly good? Okay, so then we, we'll, we'll go to our Amuna. We have our Amuna. But in the meantime, like I said, the difference between past and future, when events are still in flux and still unfolding, even if they require miracles, let's not think about Amuna. Let's, let's just think, let's be focused single-mindedly on Betochen. And let's know that Bitochen is a totally legitimate and, in fact, probably the most responsible way of, as long as you also do your, your little hishtadlis for Hashem to have his deniable plausibility. We explain that in Shara Bitochen a lot, that you do, you do the, the, the word in, in the Hasidic Svarim is the kalim. You make the kalim, you make the vessels for Hashem to uh, hide his, his blessings, to make it plausible that it happened naturally, not supernaturally, even though for sure it happened supernaturally. But the point is, you make your hishtadlis, you do your normal, natural uh, work. But the main thing is that uh, we're, we're, we're trusting in Hashem and that we believe that that protocol is not only totally legitimate, but it's a, it's the best approach. It's the most effective approach, most responsible and most, most guaranteed. And let's not think about, you understand how that would undercut the effectiveness of it in the moment. Let's not think about what if, I hope that, I hope that, I hope that's helpful. Um, we just spoke about making a Kaylee. Um, that like we need to make a Kaylee because we have to have a way for Hashem to, you know, hide, hide that, you know, make it look like it's not this great miracle. But people want to know um, if you could expound a little bit more on that. Also, like how much of a Kaylee, like you want to make a Kaylee, you don't either want to go overboard. Um, if you have mm -hmm. anything to add to that. Okay. People want lessons in how to make a Kaylee. So I think that, See, this is teaching us not how to make a Kayla, but how not to make one. <laughs> In other words, um, how to make Kalim, how to do natural hishtadlis, that's our default. That's what the animal soul wants us to do automatically. And it's and it's the only thing that the animal soul believes is actually responsible because the animal soul is materialist. So it only believes in stuff that it can touch and taste and, and see and hear. Um so we don't need lessons in how to do natural 
regular hishtadlis. I think what we need is some parameters of how to know when we're overdoing it. So I'm reversing the question a little bit, not how to make Caleb, but how not to make Caleb. <laughs> At what point is, is it too much? And there is a concept of too much. The Tzamach Tzadik gives this mashal in the Maimit Tiglachas HaMetzayda in the Sefer Derech Mitzvah Secha. He says that uh, Caleb is also, also means clothing. And if a person has a robe that is too long for him, you know, like the collars with the, with the dress and they have to hold it, they have to hold it up for them so they don't trip. So if you have like a, a, a robe that's too long, you're going to trip on it. So there is such a thing as overdoing the kalim, like a person who's working too many hours to make the parnosa that he needs. It's actually not only unnecessary, it's detrimental. It becomes counterproductive. So there is such a thing as too much. So what is too much? How do you, where do you draw the line? How do you know? Well, let me start by describing the most um, extreme limit, meaning the most, <laughs> the most severe limits upon how little of a vessel you should make. There's a story of the Baal that the Rebbe told where he was collecting money and obviously it wasn't for uh, personal use. It was for a mitzvah. It was to redeem captives. So he needed to collect money. And uh, there was a rich guy in town who had some money. So the Baal Shem Tov went to the guy's house. He knocked on the window. And he turned around without waiting and he walked away. So the Talmudim asked why are you uh, walking away before the guy comes out? He says, I did what I needed to do, <laughs> right? What? I'm expecting that money's going to fall through the ceiling. The Baal Shem Tov didn't use that expression, but it's as if to say, what, you think, I, you think I'm expecting Hashem just to make the money fall through the ceiling? No, I understand. It's going to happen in a natural way. You have to make a vessel for it. So I made a vessel. I went and I went to the guy's house physically went there, knocked on the window, physically knocked on the window. Okay, so I did my part. The guy wants to give, he'll give. And so it turned out the guy came running down the street, chasing the Baal Shem Tov and gave him the money. So at the extreme, what is a Kaylee? A Kaylee is um, the bare minimum, something physical, something physical. And the reason you want something physical is because you want the blessing to reach you here in the physical world. Blessings come from on high, but they need to reach down below. And in order for it to actually reach us, you have to prepare an opening in the physical world for it to be received. So you do something physical. How much? Anything. Just like the Baal Shem Tov story. But uh, so I said, that's the most extreme definition of making a vessel. But if you want to follow a more moderate opinion of what it means, here's what it means. And this is also according to Tiglachas HaMetzayda from the Tzamech Tzedek. Just be normal. Just be normal. Sit down and figure out what are the things that would normally need to happen in order. He says it regarding making a living. So figure out what's a normal way to make whatever your budget is. You make a budget, figure out how much you need, and then do the normal things. And don't overdo it. Because in the final analysis, the whole purpose for the vessels is only 
to provide what I called uh, I called earlier, I referred to this earlier, plausible deniability. It's allowing Hashem an excuse, an alibi, to say that he didn't miraculously sustain you, even though Hashem is miraculously sustaining you. But since you did the natural, normal thing, it looks like, it looks like, you just did it on your own. And that's all really that's necessary is just for you to provide that cover so it's not obvious that miracles are happening. However, now let me flip back. Because <laughs> I said the extreme limit of not doing too much shtadlis, and then I said the moderate definition of shtadlis. Now I'm going to go on the third hand, on this hand, on the other hand, and on the third hand, and I'm going to say, you know, there's a shot from Abhil uh, Parachar. He says, um, you know, we have the the phrase from Kapitol Nunhei, the Pod of Shalom which we were singing the other day, and we'll sing again next week for Yudtes Kislev. Um, we sang it for Yud Kislev, the Yemigula of the Mitlid Eben. We'll sing it again for Yudtes Kislev, for the Yemigula of the, of the Alter Eben. So over there, Padre Vishalem, Kapitel Nunhei of, of, of Tilim, he says, Hashlech al Hashem Yohavcha, cast your burdens upon Hashem. And by the way, that, that phrase is brought in the Sikha that we're learning. That's the uh, scriptural origin for this idea of being worry-free. Cast your burdens on Hashem means being, be completely at peace. And he will sustain you. Um, like Maloshin Kalkola, like we say in the Alamich Yabracha, means sustenance. He will sustain you. But Hilipadacha says, it's Lushen Kali. Hu Yechalkalecha means, and he will provide the Kalim. That technically, really, you can just tell Hashem, you know what? I'm going to skip the Kalim. I'm just going to go straight to the Betachen. And if you want there to be deniable plausibility for your miracles, you'll work that part out too. So you're going to say, well, which one should I do? You just described a lot of different answers, a lot of different approaches. And you know what? There's a reason why there are a lot of different approaches. You know why? This isn't a technical thing. This is an emotional thing. It's like you're asking me, how should I spend time with my wife? Well, I don't know. Tell me about you. Tell me about her. This is not a technical thing. This is not This is not something that you go through the motions with. It's an emotional state. And therefore, it has to be real to you. You can't lie a prayer. It's an old expression. You can't lie a prayer. Right? Prayer is you're talking to Hashem. You can't lie a prayer. You can lie to people. You can't lie a prayer. So you have to do what works for you. The main thing is that you should be at ease. So if you're only going to be at ease if you do a certain amount of hishtadlis that puts your uh, nefshabamis at rest and gets it to back off, okay, so that's what you're going to have to do. But if you can follow uh, Hillel's approach, let Hashem make Kalim too and feel at rest, Adarabba, why not? Why not? The main thing is that Mahusa is Menuchas Whatever you have to do, 
to convince yourself that you're not being crazy by being calm. It's not crazy at all. It's actually completely sane. It's the most sane and most responsible approach. What else? Uh... So we have some, a lot of questions. We kind of touched on it before, but um, a lot of questions about, you know, like having bitachan and then things not working out and feeling like seeing people who have a lot, a lot of bitachan and then things are bad for them. Like, how does that make sense? And then also, um, just to add to that, someone wanted to know if if this is true, if having bitachan makes um, makes the reality different, right? It changes the reality. And then in order for it to be truth and for it to be MS, it has to work across the board. So what about the times when we don't see it working? Okay, so those are similar questions. One is about, well, what if I saw someone who I think has a lot of betachen and things didn't work out for them? And then the other question was, well, if it's true, it's got to always be true. So I feel like I answered this question already, but the fact that it's still being asked, now maybe people are asking it who are coming on the chat new, who weren't here 15, 20 minutes ago when I feel like uh, we spoke about this. But if people are who people were here and they're still asking, so then maybe it needs to be said again. Um, like I said earlier, Trachut Vitzeingut, is an incredibly powerful method for achieving results. I will furthermore say, which I didn't say before, that I do believe that the Rebbe put himself at personal risk to reveal this to us. Now, it sounds like an outlandish statement, but we just had Yud Kislev, and we're going into Yud Tes Kislev. We know that uh, those are the days of liberation from imprisonment of the Mitle Rebbe and the Alter Rebbe. So we know why those imprisonments took place. There was a kitrug, there was a, an accusation in the heavenly court that they were spreading too much of the secrets of the Torah. And the Rebbe speaks about this. If, if the acquittal of the Alter Rebbe and Yutes Kislev meant that the heavenly court approved of teaching Siddhis, then how come it happened to his son a generation later and he had to go through the whole process again? So the Rebbe explains, well... He was acquitted for revealing those secrets. But then the Mitle Rebbe came and pushed the envelope even more and started revealing more secrets. The Alte Rebbe was Chochmah, the Mitle Rebbe was Bina. Chochmah is just a hint of an idea. Bina is the elaboration. He spelled it out. He said it really clearly. So when you start spelling things out, hey, we gave you permission to say the hints. We didn't give you permission to spell it out. So again, with the imprisonment, again, with the trial, again, with the acquittal and the green light to go ahead and spread the secrets. So there's a reason why, although the Rebbe is telling a story of the Tzemach Tzedek, so the idea, at least as a, as a practice, existed in the times of the Tzemach Tzedek, but the explanation that the Rebbe is giving, the window to the mechanics of it is, is radically new. And of course, everything that Rebbe is saying is based on modern Mekayim. It's always the Rebbe is always sourced in Kazal. And it's all based on the whole reciprocity of the way that they deal from you in heaven is how, how you, the, the attitude you project from your heart that's based on Azoyhar. And, and all these ideas are they're based on Anshara Betochen and all the commentaries on Anshara Betochen. But to put it together so clearly 
um, to spell it out so clearly, this method, and to say so clearly this idea that I was saying earlier, which I think is the main idea of the Sikha, that your imperfections cannot disrupt Hashem's ability to do miracles for you. That's a, that's a radical concept. Like I said, of course, it's all based on, on traditional sources, but to put it all together that way and then to deliver it with such an explicit directive is, is radical. So that's a revelation of secrets of the Torah. It wasn't revealed before. So the Rebbe was pushing the envelope to reveal things that were not known. Now, this isn't the only example, by the way. There are almost unlimited examples of radical concepts of secrets of the Torah that the Rebbe shared that were not really known or understood, certainly not fully understood in previous generations, even by the greatest chassidim. So what I'm saying to you is, you have to slow down and think for a second. The Rebbe chose to share something with us. It's not just uh, an academic teaching, God forbid. It's, uh, it's a real idea with an actual directive. And you have to stop and think for a second. When the Rebbe shared this idea, Obviously, it wasn't without some consideration. The Rebbe's doing revolutionary things, sharing new secrets, secrets that were unshared before. So that's, that's, not a, that's not a decision that's made without consideration. Obviously, and I'm not trying to uh, be chayker and trying to uh, think that I understand what the Rebbe's thought process is. But I think it's a fair and safe assumption to say, I think it's self-evident that the Rebbe chose to reveal this information because he felt that it was needed. I think, is that fair to say? Is that, I mean, we're comfortable saying that, that the Rebbe chose to share this information because he felt that it was needed. It wasn't, God forbid to even speak in such a crass way, but it's not like the Rebbe needed something to say at a Fabrengen and thought this would be interesting, God forbid. The Rebbe sharing really sensitive, heavenly secrets with us, obviously because he feels that this generation needs it. So what am I trying to get at? What I'm trying to get at is that there are questions that you can ask after the fact where you've observed that this tool seems not to be foolproof. Or questions you have about how reliable this tool is. And I'm not sure I can answer those questions. Maybe there are others who are better suited to answer that. What I can tell you is that the Rebbe gave us this tool in full confidence that it would improve our lives, that it would make the world a better place, and it would bring us closer to Hashem. I think those are safe assumptions. So you can ask questions about where you perceive the tool not to have been 100% effective, but I hope that at the end of the analysis, your takeaway is that your feelings about this tool still remain that it's a really good thing to do. It's a smart thing to do. It's a responsible thing to do. 
And even if you've seen things in the past that have made you question whether it's smart or responsible or safe or guaranteed or whatever it may be, I hope your, your, your final conclusion will be that this is not only a good way to move forward, but I would say, I think I'm, think I'm confident saying it is the best way of moving forward. I don't know if I'm answering the question or not answering the question, but I think on a practical level, on a, maybe there are those who are better suited to answer the nuances as far as the, the technical concepts. But from a practical level, I believe this is, this is the answer. Don't allow anything you've perceived in the past about the, the effectiveness of this tool to, to cause you to make yourself miss out on this incredibly powerful and effective tool. Um, just to end off tonight with one more question, uh, maybe you could give people want some practical tips, like how to get yourself from being in a state of like, you know, fear and anxiety and whatever, bringing your head and your heart into a place of like and believing that things will be good. Um, if you have any tips that you could share or any practical yeah. advice with people. Okay. so. You know, that's a great question. What, what I mentioned earlier that the Nefesh is the animal soul or the survival impulse always wants to see what it thinks is the responsible way of dealing with problems, uh, which is something physical because the animal soul has a completely materialistic uh, point of view. And for it, the only responsible, effective response to any situation is a materialistic response, meaning a physical response. And it gets really nervous about spiritual explanations for physical phenomena. One of the things that Siddhis does and when I say chassidus, I mean all of it, the entire body of chassidic teachings. Whatever specific topic in chassidus you're studying, one of the, the one property of all chassidus, and I, when I say chassidus, I mean chassidus chabad, but one property that all chassidus chabad has in common, regardless of what specific subject the, a, a given mimer or sicha may be focused on, is that it gets us thinking about reality from a spiritual perspective. Um, and not just our godly soul, which already intuitively understands the spiritual perspective, but our animal soul, chiefly our animal soul, which is why Siddhis explains very often um, when, we're, when we're davening and we're getting ourselves ready to say Shema and to proclaim the unity of God, we, we talk about the angels who are called animals. Why do we do that? Why, what, what's, what's the point? Because we're reminding our animal soul that its source is in those angelic animals. In other words, we're telling our animal soul, you're actually a spiritual being too. <laughs> right? Is that old saying that people like, we're not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. So every time I say that, people like that. I don't know why, because it's got good structure. But uh, I'll tell you something even better. 
You have to tell your animal soul. Behema, listen. You are not, when you're davening, I'm talking about. When you're about to daven, you say to your animal soul, when you're in the middle of Birkash Kishma, you don't say this out loud because you can't be mafsik, but you say in your mind to your animal soul while you're getting ready for Shema. Behema, listen. You are not an animal having a spiritual experience. You are a spiritual being having an animalistic experience. You're a heavenly entity that's come down to be the survival impulse of a Jewish body. And that's why, because you're wired to be a survival impulse, you, you think about food and sleep and money and physical stuff. But really, you're, you're actually a spiritual being. And I want to talk to you about the spiritual mechanics behind all the physical stuff that you care about. That's what Chassidus is. I mean, there's a lot of things, but from one approach, that's what Chassidus is getting that really concrete part of ourselves, that ego that just wants physical actions with physical results. We want to get that part of us to start thinking abstractly. Rabbi Rashab mentions in Kuntrus Amayin that one of the advantages of learning Chassidus, any Chassidus, is that it speaks about concepts for which you cannot have Hasagas Mahus, you can only have Yudhiyas HaMetzias, which means, Hasagas Mahus means I know the thing, I've experienced, I've, I know what the pen is, I've held it in my hand, I've looked at it, I can draw it, I can weigh it and tell you how much it weighs. That's Hasagas Mahus. Then there are things for which you only have Yudhiyas HaMetzias, you only have an abstract notion of their existence, because you can't experience them, you can only hear about them. So, like, someplace you've never been, someone could tell you, what it's like, but until you've been there, you don't have a Sagas and Mahos, you only have Yudhiyas and Metzias. Now that's a place that you've never been, but you could go there. What about a place like Atsilos, you know, the higher worlds, where it's not just you haven't been there, it's it's not something you can experience, at least not in, a, in an embodied state. So you're going to inherently have to have Yudhiyas and Metzias, not a Sagas and Mahos. So the, the Rebbe Deshav explains like this, when you learn spiritual subjects, which this is rife with, um, what you're doing is you're you're stretching your human brain's capacity to think abstractly and spiritually, to start to take seriously ideas for which it is fundamentally impossible to have a physical experience of or a sensorial experience of. So to answer your question, what I would encourage everyone to do is exercise your capacity for spiritual thinking. The moment you open your eyes, you're already being bombarded with physical senses. And your mind is making sense of that stimuli and giving a lot of credence and a lot of importance to that stimuli. And it's getting itself into a mode of assuming that the physical reality is the absolute reality. And that's not a healthy worldview for us to function within. I mean, the physical world exists. Of course it does. But it only exists because Bereshish Bore Elikim. doesn't exist because my five senses tell me it exists. It exists because the Torah tells me that God made a world and therefore the world exists. It talks about in the Marash's Mimer in Micha Moicha. So I would encourage you just in general to learn chassidus, any chassidus, even if it, even if the topic isn't a and betachen, because it will make you think more spiritually. 
and be more comfortable with spiritual ideas and more comfortable with taking seriously things that your body can't touch and taste and, 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 and see and hear. And when you do that, you're going to start feeling more comfortable with a lot of things, including betachan, because it's going to be more logical to you that, of course, of course, the most effective approach to something isn't a purely materialistic approach to it. Of course, in fact, it makes perfect sense that the most powerful approach to something should be something that's chiefly spiritual with a minor physical component mixed in just for the purposes of providing a channel for things to come down to the physical world. You understand what I'm saying? That the mechanics of Betochen are pretty simple. That, I don't think, takes a lot of explanation. Believe that Hashem can help you even if it takes a miracle and that there's nothing you can do to, make it, to, to, to mess that up. That's what it is. But to actually take it seriously and to respect yourself as an intellectual in the morning after you do, for that, you have to really keep yourself in a, in a mode where you're, where you're, you're studying this and, and therefore your brain is comfortable uh, functioning in that world of abstraction, in the world of spiritual ideas. <sighs> yeah, so much more to be said about this. So are, uh, we're good for now. Yeah, I think okay. so. Um, thank you so much for for taking all those questions. There were some more, but I think for now, okay. for if we need to continue, we can continue. Can we end off um, with a capital tell him? Are you okay? Sure. With that? Which capital do we want to say? Kufchaf Aleph. Aleph. Okay, we're going to say Kufchaf Aleph one twenty one. It's a great capital for many, many reasons. And this is again Beschus Rafua Shlema. Bas Bracha Dvaira Leah. A complete, speedy recovery. Shir Lamailais Esa Inai El Haharim, Me Ayin Yave Ezri, Ezri, Meim Adinoi Ese Shamayim Vaaretz. Al yitain la mate raglacho, al yonum shemracho. Hine la yonum vola yishon, shemer yisroel. Adinoi shemracho, adinoi silho al yad yiminacho. Ye mum hashemish la yakako, viareach maloilo. Adinoi yishmor homikol ro, yishmer es nafshaho. Adinoi yishmor tesro viaho, viato viad elom. Thank you okay. so much. Yeah, thank you. That was great. All right. Thank you again. Good night to everyone. Good night.